Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. For months, a lot of economists and traders have been saying it's just manufacturing. It is a specific sector that is suffering specific pain. Today, we get uh, data showing that a U.S. services gauge dropped to a three-year low. A gauge of employment in the U.S. services sector fell into contraction for the first time since 2010. This is beyond manufacturing. Joining us here, Yelena Shulietyeva, our senior U.S. economist for Bloomberg Economics, joining us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. How concerned should we be? So uh, today's numbers are a clear sign that uh, worries, uh, you know, that we saw in the manufacturing sector are spreading beyond into a broader economic activity. However, I would caution against, you know, saying, okay, this is a recession signal. It's not. You know, the uh, sector is still expanding, although at a slower pace. You know, I think this um, kind of um, number is comparable to what happened back in 2016. Remember when we had China devaluation and a market rout on the back of it, and that affected business sentiment to quite a significant degree. But we were not talking about recession, so we're not talking about a recession now. We think the probability still remains uh, relatively low. Uh, Yelena, when we saw the manufacturing side of the economy uh, turn negative and actually into contraction, uh, I think a lot of people felt like it was primarily driven by uncertainties associated with the trade uh, tensions. Is that? Do you think that's also impacting the service society of the economy as well? Uh, sure. So uh, if you read some comments, you know, not only look at the numbers, but if you read the comments in the actual uh, ISM report, uh, there's a lot of discussion all across uh, the manufacturing and non-manufacturing industries about how tariffs are impacting their businesses. So, but what I found very interesting in today's report actually is that uh, some uh, some people are talking about how they are substituting, how they are working to substitute some imports from China with uh, imports from other countries. So I think eventually this will work and uh, we will be just okay. But uh, right now it's just creating a lot of uncertainty. So how much of a concern does sort of raise ahead of tomorrow's uh, jobs number? I think it's a significant uh, indicator, you know, along with uh, other uh, labor market indicators. I think it's telling us we will see another relatively weak number, but again, not something that will uh, be able to push the unemployment rate uh, higher. In fact, we expect the unemployment rate to go down by a tenth to 3.6%. So uh, a 135,000 number that we are forecasting would be just enough to do that. So given that we are starting to see a little bit of weakness um, creep into the consumer, the services side, um, and we'll certainly wait for the uh, jobs data tomorrow. How do you think the the Fed will react for the remainder of this year? Interesting you mentioned that because we already heard uh, today after the weak ISM number and, uh, you know, other uh, indicators, we heard from uh, 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 Charlie Evans overnight. He was speaking in Madrid and he actually said that uh, he's still not convinced they need to act uh, at the October meeting. He uh, thinks that fundamentals remain solid. But uh, I think if we continue to get weak data like we did today, 
especially the unemployment rate report, this will push the Fed's hand uh, at the end of the month. Let's say there are some optimists out there saying, let's buy this dip. We think that the market's going to turn around and that either the Fed will come in with stimulus or uh, we'll see strength from somewhere else. Where in the economy could we see strength? Well, you know, the, it's it's the consumer. We've been talking about it for quite some time, right? So right, that's, but doesn't this directly feed into consumer spending? And isn't consumer spending essentially a lagging indicator and employment kind of precedes that? It depends on how much uh, wages grow, okay, and how much uh, will consumers feel optimistic about the outlook and uh, will they spend it. So we are heading into a holiday season pretty soon. So we'll see how that plays out. So the like early indicators are saying that the holiday season will be a good one. So Yelena, are you guys at Bloomberg Economics in the camp that um, there could be a recession in 2020 or maybe just more like the new normal, which might be one and a half to two percent growth, and that might be kind of what we have. So we don't see a recession within the next twelve months. We think the uh, probability is relatively low. We just uh, published uh, some uh, research. Uh, actually, uh, our recession indicator is at twenty-five percent for the next twelve months, and uh, we think that we will see a significant slowdown in the second half of the year uh, to something like one point eight percent on average from two point six percent in the first half of the year, but that by no means means uh, recession is coming. I'm just trying to understand going forward. It seems like the market is saying the Federal Reserve will cut rates. It will be insufficient to uh, fuel economic growth. Real quick, that accurate? I think it is. I think, uh, you know, the market is thinking the Fed might not have enough ammunition to uh, act. They will obviously do what they can, but uh, this might require some sort of a fiscal stimulus. The chances, I don't know, I cannot talk about the chances of that, but it seems like that's what we need um, at this point. Yelena Chilatieva, thank you so much, senior U.S. economist for Bloomberg Economics, joining us here on our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. George Young, partner and portfolio manager at Villery Funds, uh, joins us to talk about volatility and trading in this market. Uh, Villery Funds, they are based in the great city of New Orleans, but uh, George joins us here live in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, George, I was just talking about, you know, these past couple of days, this week has just been, uh, you know, a sell-off on some weakening economic news. How are you guys viewing the market right here? Well, we're long-term investors, and I think that's important for people to keep in mind because this is not a short-term event. It's not like going to the casino where you need to cash out at the end of the day. So if you can put on some blinders and look out into the future, again, I'd like to think that our investors are investing for retirement, for specific goals, whether it's education for the kids, whatever it may be. Uh, You need to look at the fact that the economy is basically healthy. Yeah, there's some ripples out there. Worried about the manufacturing index, but I think of that as a short-term indicator. Uh, when I say the economy is healthy, we've got good GDP numbers, we've got low unemployment, we've got not overly strong valuations in the stock market, so it's still attractive from a PE base, especially in light of the fact that you've got 1.6% yields on the 10-year Treasury. Got to keep all that in mind. So this is something people say. We're long-term investors, buy and hold, the U.S. economy isn't going to collapse entirely. It's a good time to just stay invested and stay the course. 
What happens if someone is 64 years old, they're gonna retire in the next three years, and they wanna know where should they be hiding right now? You know, should they basically uh, shift away from all their stocks and just go to cash because there is sort of an imminent crash being signaled by weakening services and on the heels of manufacturing and then talk of trade wars and forget about it? Well, I'll give you two answers on that one. If you're 64 years old, that means that you're retiring possibly, but that doesn't mean you're going to die tomorrow. So you've got to think that you've got another 20 years to live. And if that's going to happen on a statistical basis, you've got to buy stocks. 1.6% in a government bond is not going to cut it. So you really need to be prepared to invest for a longer term. And that's not going to be fun. But again, it's very easy to look backwards and see what the sell signals were. Again, if you look back at the fourth quarter of last year, a lot of people are remembering, oh, fourth quarter last year. That was a problem. We're entering the fourth quarter now. October, I'm told, is a bad month. All those things are true. And I have no aversion to a 64-year-old having a certain amount in cash or a certain amount in bonds, but I think they still got to have a preponderance in stocks because that's what's going to keep them for the long term. I'd say a different answer if you were talking about an 80-year-old. Life expectancy isn't as long. Different needs, different uh, reaction to volatility. Uh, and there's one other old aphorism, uh, no safe haven for capital or capitalists. So you've got to be a little cautious. Uh, but again, you, you, you enter the stock market assuming there's going to be a certain amount of risk and you have to be willing to take that. So here we are, uh, George, uh, 10 plus years into this economic cycle. Uh, we have signs of um, you know, a weakening economy still growing in the U.S., but, but weakening. What are the sectors that you think uh, that you're recommending to your clients that they uh, pay attention to? Well, I think you've got good opportunities in technology. And again, technology dominates the S&P 500. But one common characteristic with technology is whatever software, for instance, that you buy, you as a user tend to re-up that same software. And so they've got very visible cash flow streams. The other thing that's attractive is most technology companies have very little debt. And that's obviously a way that you get in trouble uh, nowadays if you have too much debt. And as we all know, with a lot of corporations, any debt that is on a company's books can be refinanced at these historically low rates. So I think technology is a good area to look at. I want to go back to the sort of age issues. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm having my head, of course, when I'm 64, but I'm not going to sing it. Right. Um, I, I'm wondering, do you think then that for no reason should people change their allocations? In other words, let's just say, I mean, should they reduce their allocations to equities in a situation where they're needing to preserve cash and focus on the income level? Or should they look to stocks as the new income providers? I think that people need to understand the total return concept, and I think most people do, that as you shift, and let's say we're talking about an IRA, so for, the, for argument's sake, you don't have to worry about taxes. You can make that shift, and you should, as you move from, let's say, the 64-year-old to the 80 year old. The other thing to keep in mind is that if you do make uh, an abrupt decision to liquidate your portfolio and go 50% into cash, what's gonna be the sign that's gonna tell you, okay, now it's quote, safe to get back in. It does not ring a bell. You never know when that's gonna happen. So I think it's much better to adopt a, a constant um, uh, investment policy statement for yourself. Endowment funds, uh, mutual funds have an investment policy statement, and they adhere to those with good reason. So if you think back about uh, the fourth quarter of last year, think back to uh, the first quarter of 2009 when the market was hitting lows, it's good that you would have stuck to your uh, investment policy statement to maintain the proper asset allocation.
Well, certainly people who stuck to their allocations today in equities are actually going to be pleasantly surprised because what looked like it was going to be a very down day has turned surprisingly positive with the Nasdaq up nearly six tenths of a percent. George Young, thank you so much for being with sure. us. George Young, portfolio manager of the Villery Balanced Fund, which trades under the ticker VILLX. Joining us now, we are so happy to have Damien Sassauer, fixed income strategist, focused on the emerging markets for Bloomberg Intelligence. And uh, I want to look first at Argentina because it's 100-year bonds that were sold just a couple of years ago, trading at 43 cents in the dollar, trading a par not so long ago. What is the implication here? Well, I think you want to talk about Argentina because I just returned from Buenos Aires uh, yes. last week. So let's talk about Argentina. Argentina, and I've met with quite a bunch of people on the ground, and it's certainly a deflating uh, sentiment down there, but um, $350 billion of debt outstanding, of which $260 billion is in hard currency. So they will have to undergo a major restructuring. I mean, this isn't just going to be a reprofiling of maturities such as they've led us to believe. This is going to be led by the IMF, which... By the way, $44 billion of that hard currency debt is owed to the IMF. And so there's going to be a lot of interplay there. I mean, certainly with Lagarde moving to the ECB and now Kristalina Georgieva ascending to the head of the IMF, you know, she's a Bulgarian economist. The uh, Bulgaria was um, bailed out by the IMF back in 1998. But really, you have to look back to 1998 to know why Argentina is in the current situation it's in, uh, Lisa. And the fact remains, you know, they've got a lot of debt outstanding. They need short-term relief. It's going to be led by the IMF. And and how uh, Yurgiva and um, whoever's in office after the elections on the 27th is, uh, you know, however they play and however those negotiations go, we can only hope from the perspective of an external U.S. dollar creditor that they go smoothly and then they go quite frankly, quite quickly, because in addition to, you know, the bonds that are outstanding, there's also CDS, 29 billion notional of CDS outstanding, of which 5 billion is net, not gross notional outstanding. So someone's going to have to eat that loss if indeed <laughs> money changes hands and there's a CDS trigger, which is hit. So, you know, there's a lot to look at. I mean, certainly, I mean, but, you know, just looking back at what's in the best interest of Argentina, you know, if before my trip down there last week, I would have said, you know, most people would have thought that, you know, uh, a Fernandez Kirchner government would have been deemed um, bad for the market. I don't think you can make that claim anymore. I mean, certainly some of the capital controls, and not all capital controls are bad, but the McCree administration, some of the capital controls they just put into place, I mean, basically what they did was they they uh, they basically um, wouldn't let local peso-denominated money market funds, which are holding the salaries for local workers, basically pay back that money. So, you know, I mean, corporates, local corporates who are using money markets to stash their cash couldn't access it to pay salaries last month because of a lot of these capital controls. So... I mean, McCree's not well-loved locally on the ground, and certainly that was probably a very hasty and cumbersome move, in my opinion. So what's the, what, is, what would be a quick resolution here? What kind of timing are we looking for? I mean, most uh, IMF you know, kind of negotiations probably take about six months. Um, so anything before that would be very, very quick, because this is a very, very complicated restructuring that needs to take place. I mean, you know, Paul, I mean, we have marketable and non-marketable debt. We have hard currency and local currency debt. We have different creditors. We have PARs. We have discos. We have bonars. We have Laliques. <laughs> I mean, we have so many different structures that form that debt stack that to kind of go through it all and kind of, I mean, different covenants, different, um, um, it just 
just so much stuff that you need to go through. But the good thing is you do have collective action clauses on most of the foreign law debt. So they should be able to kind of push things forward a little bit more quickly than we've seen in the past. Just in a minute, I'm wondering how representative is Argentina of other potential potholes in emerging markets? Well, Argentina is very unique. I mean, this has been going on for years. I mean, they've defaulted twice in the last 20 years already. I mean, again, a lot of this started with the with with in 1998 when Russia defaulted on its debt and basically that pushed the Great Recession into Latin America. If you look at 02, Brazil emerged from that and there was a similar politician that was actually um, running under a very kind of populist platform in Brazil in 02 and that was Lula. And so Lula, which was the market thought he would be very market unfriendly going into office, actually wound up being very friendly in terms of the market and actually, you know, the economy, look at where it is now relative to to where it once was. Um, You can only hope that Alberto Fernandez might kind of fit into that category. I mean, the the verdict is still out because he's not saying anything until he's elected and we don't know what what his cabinet's going to be comprised of. But I think that's going to be really key after the election. Who does he pick to be in his cabinet from an economics perspective? That is the most important thing that we're looking at right now, Paul. All right, we'll have you uh, back on to give us some color as this plays out. Big, big numbers uh, for Argentina. Uh, Hopefully, uh, sooner rather than later, they get a resolution there. Damien Sassauer, Chief Emerging Markets Credit Strategist, joining us in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers uh, studio. People don't want to pay to trade stocks. That has been the resounding message behind the success of apps like Robinhood, which allows people to do just that. Joining us now to talk about the shift to no-fee trading is Bill Capuzzi. He's chief executive officer of Apex Clearing. Uh, Joining us on the phone from Chicago, Bill, I want to talk a little bit about Charles Schwab's decision announcement earlier this week to uh, abandon commissions. Uh, for their brokers and move into a model that more closely resembles Robin Hood. What was your reaction? Yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised. Uh, I'm not surprised at all that that happened. It was just a matter of time. Uh, you know, as you mentioned, Robin Hood, uh, which we helped as a custodial uh, you know, a partner to Robin Hood back when, we helped them launch as a free app. Uh, we also helped uh, since then a couple dozen others offer free trading solutions and uh, there's there's demand, right? Look at Robinhood, they have, you know, close to 7 million users uh, today. And and the reason for it is um, people are looking for yield, looking for opportunities and lowering barriers to investing. Uh, so I'm not surprised at all. And I'm certainly not surprised that TD and, and E-Trade follow suit. Uh, and my expectation is somewhere in the next 24 hours, we'll, we'll hear from, from Fidelity as well. So, Bill, we've seen in the asset management business, uh, you know, rates, um, fees continuing to uh, go lower. Where does, uh, just give us a sense of like the economic model for like a Robinhood, for, uh, Robinhood, for example. How do they make money? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, there's, there's lots of press out over the last 24 hours around this. And and the reality is there's, there's a few different levers, I'll, I'll say, uh, that are that are pulled uh, in terms of how to monetize, a, you know, a free, uh, you know, from a, an explicit fee perspective, a free uh, solution. Um, one is payment for order flow, right? So to the extent people are trading actively in stocks, <clears throat> Those orders, retailers are routed to market makers, um, and there's spread in the name, um, and there's an opportunity to make uh, make uh, money off of the trading. Um, and what I would say is, 
you know, for a retail investor, the frictionless uh, way of trading today, it's probably never been better. As a matter of fact, I want to say probably it's never been better than it is today. And the spreads are so tight. Uh, you know, there's some opportunity there, but I think, you know, in terms of the win-win for an end investor, uh, it's, a, it's a tremendous uh, time in ter- just in terms of trading friction. The second is interest, right? So, you know, if you look at Schwab and what they came out with, they said, hey, look, 3 to 4% of our top-line revenue came from commissions. The vast majority, you know, of their, uh, you know, their revenue today is either interest income or fee-based. Uh, revenue. And then the last thing that's not talked about a lot in just traditional brokerage is um, stock loan. Right? So every anytime someone is uh, buying a stock, there's an opportunity on the street where someone wants to short the stock and is looking for uh, the ability to loan the stock and there's money made in terms of stock loan. So Despite all of those areas to possibly make money, we are looking at Charles Schwab shares uh, down an additional 3.2% today, following a 3.3% loss yesterday and a 9.7% loss the day that they made this announcement. So it does seem like people will view this in a negative light in terms of earnings profitability. There is a saying, there's no such thing as free lunch. For individual investors who are looking at potential brokers, what should they be looking for for truly a good deal and not perhaps some fees that are going to be baked in on the back end? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, and I think that there are some things, right? So, uh, you know, the fine print, uh, you talked about a free lunch, right? Make the analogy to, you know, the ads for Verizon where it's a free, you get a free iPhone, right? It's not free. It's baked into a longer term contract. Uh, and the same goes for brokerage, right? People need to look at things like, is there a minimum balance that's required in the account? Uh, is there a certain trade size that I have to do in order to, to, to get that quote unquote free? Uh, what's the interest that I'm going to receive on the cash that's, that's, uh, that's in these accounts? Um, what, what am I paying for options, right? If I'm going to trade an option, what's the cost of an option? And then the last one and kind of the last frontier is mutual funds. Um, you know, are, um, are the fees for mutual funds free or is it close to free? Um, um, I do think sort of the one of the consequences of, of this is that there's, there's going to be further pressure on the mutual fund industry, right? Because ETFs, you know, look at Schwab's announcement, equities and ETFs are free. Well, mutual funds aren't. Yep. Uh, and it's just going to put more and more pressure on, on the mutual fund industry and, you know, drive more into the ETF world. Bill Capuzzi, thanks so much for joining us. We really, really appreciate your thoughts on this move we're seeing in the asset management business towards uh, zero fees. Chief Executive Officer of Apex Clearing, uh, Bill, joined us on the phone from Chicago. Again, just really amazing change to the asset management business uh, with Charles Schwab announcing going to uh, zero cost for uh, many of their equity trades, just a real change in the industry. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz One. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.